Welcome to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. Paying it forward. In his book, Souls in Transition, sociologist Christian Smith, he interviewed countless of emerging adults, 18 to 29-year-olds, about their religious lives, their spiritual lives, and he found that majority of them believed that all religions teach a belief in God and the need to be a good person, the need to pay it forward, just like we saw in that video. That's what, that's what most of the emerging adults, 18 to 29, thought was most important, what really mattered. And of course, Christianity was no exception. To be, a good, to be a Christian is to be a good person, a good person like Dr. Tom. Dr. Tom Katina, he's a Catholic missionary from Amsterdam, New York, and he's the only doctor at the 435-bed Mother of Mercy Hospital in the Nuba Mountains in the far south of Sudan. And for that matter, he's the only doctor that's permanently based there for a population of a half a million people. It's crazy. He, he, he takes out shrapnel from people living in this war-torn area. He delivers babies. He removes appendixes. He does all of this without electricity, without any running water, no telephones, no x-ray machines. All the while, under the threat of constant bombing, the hospital grounds, at the time he's been there, they've been bombed 11 times. And for his risks and sacrifices, you know how much money he makes? 350 bucks a month. No retirement plan, no regular health insurance, nothing. Why does he do all this? Well, in an interview with the New York Times, he said, I've been given benefits from the day I was born, a loving family, a great education. So I see it as an obligation as a Christian and as a human being to help to do good. See, Dr. Tom embodies what it means to be a Christian. Right? Being good is what it means. Being good is what Jesus most expects of his followers. You see, to be a good person is to pay it forward. To be a good person is to devote our energy to making life better for other people, to stand out from those around us in a good way because of the good things that we do. I don't know about you, that experience, sorry, that, that idea to be a good Christian, that fit my experience growing up in church. As a senior in high school, someone asked me to preach a sermon to the entire congregation on Sunday morning. Why? At the time, I had no idea, but they told me that I was a good enough person, and I started believing that. I went on four mission trips in high school to different places around the United States to help people. Why? Well, because I believed I was a good person, and that's what good people do. In my high school, my senior year, I was voted the Citizen Athlete of the Year for the entire school. Why? Well, because apparently everybody else believed that I was a good person. This was the story that was running in my head, and my guess is that might have fit some of your church experience too, right? Believing Christians are good people, it can also be motivating. 
I remember talking with a guy last year. We, we wanted to grab coffee. He, he sat down, just talked about the struggles he was having. He was getting tripped up. He was stumbling, so to speak, and so talked it through and said, hey, let's meet up next week. And when I met up with him next week, he was a totally different person, had a total different energy about him. His countenance changed. He was happy. He was joyful. He was encouraged. He was excited. And I just had to ask, I said, man, what, what's going on? Why, why the change? It's like a 180. And he said, Austin, you know what? I, I realized I forgot what was most important. I remembered that I'm supposed to be doing good for other people. He told me how every morning that week, something clicked, and he decided, you know what, when he woke up in the morning, the first thing he was going to do was how he could take the focus off himself. The first thing he was going to do was think through his day to think about all the ways that he could pay it forward for other people. You see, that reality that Christians are good people, that was motivating for him. It changed him. And again, I don't think... He's alone. I know I've talked with enough college students over the years, met with you uh, to know that that's right. Many of you believe that. Many of you believe that Jesus expects us to be good people and we're trying to live this out, trying to pay it forward, trying to devote our energy, your energy to make life better for other people, trying to stand out from those around you because of the good that you're doing, because that's what really matters. And most importantly, this isn't just a cultural phenomenon, right? The idea that Christians are good people, it's found in the scriptures. We've got Galatians, New Testament book of Galatians chapter 6 says this, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers, Romans chapter 2, a book written by the Apostle Paul. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Last one, Matthew 5, 16. Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. A couple months ago, I did something that I've never done. And you're going to think me old, that I shop in brick and mortar stores. I ordered a pair of jeans online. Gasp. I got got the fit down, got the color I thought I wanted, got the size right and ordered it. Showed up in my house a couple days later. Wrong. Wrong fit, too baggy, weird color, just didn't fit. They seemed like they were a good fit online. They looked good, but once I got them home, once I tried them on, turned out it wasn't a good fit. See, here's the deal. The statement that Christians are good people, it's kind of like my online gene-buying experience. When you take it at face value, that statement, it looks good. It sounds good, seems motivating, but when it gets to our house and when we try it on for size, I don't think it fits the way that we want it to. I think we run into some problems. First of all, when we say Christians are good people, what what does good even mean? What do we mean by good? Good according to who? George Washington, he wrote a book when he was 14 called The 101 Rules of Civility. And these were just reminders for him on how he could be a good and personal, civil person in society. Here's three of my favorites. Number 13, and I'm not making this up, I promise. Kill no vermin as fleas, lice, and ticks in the sight of others. If you see any filth or thick spittle, Put your foot dexterously upon it. I don't even know what that means. If it be on the cloths of your companions, put it off privately. And if it be upon your own cloths, return thanks to him who puts it off. So if you see vermin and fleas on me, go ahead and tell me, right? I'll probably get fired or something. 
Number 53, here's another good one. Run not in the streets, neither go too slowly, nor with mouth open. What? Go not shaking your arms, kick not the earth with your feet. Go not upon toes, nor in a dancing fashion. I, I had so many jokes. Just insert the joke you want there, right? Last one, number 95. Put not your meat to your mouth with your knife in your hand. Neither spit forth the stones of any fruit pie upon a dish, nor cast anything under the table. Got to watch out for those stones and the fruit pies. Careful, they'll get you. Right? So weird. How about this one? 1955, Good Housewives Guide explains how wives should treat their husbands. Here we go. There were like 20 of these. I just picked a few good ones here. Here, here, right. (laughs) Have dinner ready. It's not, but don't shoot the messenger. Have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready for him, on time for his return. This is a way of letting him know that you've been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. How's this? How about this one? Wives, most men are hungry when they come home, and the prospect of a good meal, especially his favorite dish, is part of the warm welcome needed. How about this one? Prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup, put a ribbon in your hair, and be fresh looking. He's just been with a lot of work-weary people. Yeah, okay. How about this one? Be a little happy and a little more interesting for him. His boring day may need a lift, and one of your duties is to provide it. Okay, Uh, my family didn't get the memo on this one. Children are little treasures, and he would like to see them playing the part. Minimize all the noise. At the time of his arrival, eliminate all of the noise of the washer, dryer, vacuum, and try to encourage the children to be quiet. Again, we're still working on that one in my house. Over the couple more, I promise. Over the cooler months of the year, you should prepare a light, prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by. Your husband will feel he has reached a haven of rest and order, and it will give you a lift too, apparently. After all, maybe not, after all, catering for his comfort will provide you with immense personal satisfaction. Last and not least, you may have a dozen important things to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first. Remember, his topics of conversation are more important than yours. It's closing prayer, right? Don't clap, goodness gracious. Gosh, you get the point, right? I want to be on record as saying I don't approve of those. When we put our minds to be good, we have so many different definitions of what good means. George Washington's 101 Rules of Civility. They seem good for him, but today they're just weird and and pretty much irrelevant. Good housewife rules made sense for some people back then, but many of them today seem ridiculous ridiculous and even offensive, right? So, so, So what we need is we need a little more substance. We need a little more clarity than just saying Christians need to be good people. How about this problem? How good is good enough? How good is good enough? When we say Christians have to be good people, how good are we talking? What's the line? Are we talking Dr. Tom? Working in Sudan, good? Or are we talking better than the people around me, good? Or do I just have to be the least bad person in my community? You know, I took this approach when I was in college, particularly living in a fraternity. It was a point of pride for me. I thought it was a good person that I only drank a six-pack on game days. Because you just should have seen my fraternity brothers. They were drinking 12 on game days. It was a point of pride that I told myself, I'm only going to use my house fraternity notes to cheat on one test per semester. You should see the other guys. 
They cheat on every single test, any test notes that they can get their hands on. So I'm good because I'm not cheating on every test, just on one test. Uh, Really? Do we really want to say that cheating on one test is good? Do we really want to say that me drinking a six-pack underage is good? Is that all we want to say about what it means to be a Christian? Just tell me the minimum and I'll, I'll scrape by? What about the problem of experience? Here's, here's what I mean. What do we do with all of the non-Christians who are really good people? What happens when somebody who explicitly does not believe in Jesus, what happens when they do something good? I mean, don't, don't Christians, aren't they supposed to have the market cornered on morality? Aren't they supposed to be the best people out there? Well, no. Let's take a couple examples. Gandhi. Gandhi championed a nonviolent campaign to end British colonial rule in India. And he became an, and still is an inspiration for other nonviolent movements across the globe, rightfully so. Gandhi wasn't a Christian. But Edwin Schindler, if you've seen the movie Schindler's List, this is the man who rescued almost 1,200 Jews from concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And as far as I could tell, everything I've read, he was not a Christian. There's a recent study in Great Britain that revealed the most generous people in the country were actually Muslims. When they averaged all the giving, it turned out that Muslims gave an average of 475 person per year. Jewish people, they gave $371 a year, and in third place, at almost half the giving of Muslims were Christians, $220 a person per year. Last one, I had a seminary professor, one of the godliest men that I know, influenced all of our staff team. In one of his classes, he said that the best marriage he ever saw in his entire life was that of his parents, neither of whom were Christians. If we stop and think about it for a second, I know all of us can think about non-Christians who are really good people. What do we do with that? How do we square that with this belief that Christians are good people? Let's take the opposite side of that experience. What do we do when Christians don't seem to be very good? What do we do when Christians actually hurt people? When they seem to make life worse for others? When they stand out not because of the good that they're doing, but because of the damage and the destruction they're doing? A lot of you, I'm sure, are familiar with The Liturgists, that podcast with Science Mike and Michael Gunger. Michael Gunger just wrote a book, and in it, he tells the story of how he lost his faith initially, what happened in his church. His dad is a mega pastor at this church, and he cheated on his mom. The mega church pastor wrote a book called Supernatural Relationships, and yet he cheated. He put his family through hell. What happened there? Now, now the, this former church, Michael Gunger's former church, the one his pastored, it, it doesn't, doesn't seem to come off any better. The pastor that took over from Gunger's dad, he sat Gunger down and chastised him for being manipulated by his parents. That church, he decided to post armed guards at the entrance so that if his dad showed up, they would turn him away. Armed guards. And his mom, the one who was cheated on, she was not allowed anywhere near the church either. What about that? How about pro-slavery Christians? If you didn't know, in the antebellum South during the Civil War era, many Christians, self-professing, church-going Christians, they adopted and taught explicitly paternalistic and racist attitudes about and towards black people, and they rooted those attitudes in the Bible from Scripture. 
Uh, among many Christians, they believed that Scripture provided not only a basis for slavery's existence, but proved, so they said, that God provided a specific decree, excuse me, God decreed a specific race of people to be cursed and live their day, days in bondage. A guy named Alexander Stevens, he's the vice president of the Confederate States. This is what he said in his speech. The Negro by nature and the curse against Canaan, which is a passage in Genesis 9, is fitted for that condition which he occupies in our system. He's a guy who claims to be a Christian. That is a gross and a wrong misinterpretation of the scripture. And yet, it was commonly taught, unfortunately, among many Christians in the antebellum South in the Civil War era. What do we do with that? Uh, I can't think of help but think of something that, that Gandhi once said. He said, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. Most importantly, though, the nail in the coffin to the belief that Christians are good people, the reason why it doesn't ultimately fit is that Jesus never said it. Jesus never said that. And the Bible never said that. Now, you might be asking yourself, what about those scriptures you just read a little bit ago? Well, here's the deal. They commanded Christians to do good. Absolutely. But it never says anything about the outcome. You see, whenever scripture presents us with a command, that command obligates us to that behavior, but it says nothing about if we'll actually do it or not. In fact, it's presented at a choice. You have to do this, and yet we have the choice to obey or not. Jesus and the Bible, they command good works, absolutely, but it never promises that Christians are gonna be good people. Never gonna find that on Jesus' lips or anywhere in the Bible. This is related to our new sermon series we're starting here over the next few weeks at Veritas. It's called Never Said That. And so over the next five weeks, we're gonna examine some commonly held beliefs that, again, online, from afar, they sound pretty good, look pretty good. They seem to be taught by Jesus. They seem to be found in the Bible, but when we get them home and when we try them on, you know what? turns out they don't actually fit the way that we thought they did. Back to tonight. If we believe this consistently, if we believe that Christians are good people, if we believe that what really matters most, the most important thing in the Christian life is being a good person, then I think it's gonna cause real damage. And it might already have. Some of us might know people who used to be Christians. They believed that Christians were good people, but then they became extremely bitter and cynical and hurt and disillusioned with the other Christians around them. They're going, what the heck? I thought Christians were supposed to be good people. Where are all the good people? This is not what I signed up for. They, they saw the sin of other Christians. They saw the hurt being inflicted on people inside and outside the church, and it damaged them. Some of us might know people who've never been Christian, and they don't want to be Christians because they can see the hypocrisy from a mile away. It makes sense, right? I mean, if you believe that you're supposed to be a good Christian, if you're supposed to be a good person, you hear all the Christians talking about how they're supposed to be good people, well, then how do you score that with the lives, with their lives, with the hurt, with the pain, with the messiness? It doesn't fit. And finally, some of us might know people who don't want to give Christianity a chance at all because they hear that to be a Christian means that I have to be a good person, and they look at their lives, and they know that they're not good people. They know that they're broken. They know that they're bad. And so they automatically assume Jesus doesn't want them or could never accept them for who they are. Do you know people like this? Is that you in some way? Again, that statement, Christians are good people, looks like it fits, but it turns out it doesn't. But thankfully, Jesus tells us a story that I think fits much better with how we need to view Christians, with how we need to view ourselves. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, chapter 18. We can put on the, 
put it on the slide behind me. Let's read the story here. To some, Jesus is speaking here, to some who were confident of their own righteous and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So many things to take away from this passage, but we're going to stick with one. This passage teaches us that Christians are needy people. Not good people. Christians are needy people. Let's go back through the story. So we have two men, right? Pharisee and a tax collector. Let's start with the Pharisee. The Pharisees were those people who saw themselves as devoted to the service of God, committed to living their lives, to obedience, to those laws. These are, the Pharisees are the quintessential good people of Jesus' day. And they saw themselves as the guardians of all truth and righteousness, right? The super moral minority that is leading the majority of God's people into what they believe is the right way to live before God. Check out what that Pharisee was doing in the temple. In verse 11, he's standing by himself, praying. And he's evaluating those around him. We know this because he says, I'm not like robbers, the evildoers, and the tax collector, that guy over there. So he's kind of closing his eyes, but looking around. You know, the half eye open, eye closed, looking and judging. It turns out this prayer is really just a self-congratulatory speech. Uh, Notice what he thanks God. He thanks God for himself, that he's not like other people. He lists off his spiritual signature on his email. Right, he fasts twice a week. He gives a tenth of all he gets, not just the income, but all of the goods that he receives. His prayer shows that he's able to feel good about himself because of what he does and because he's comparing himself with others. See, this Pharisee sees himself as better than most people. Let me get to the tax collector. Tax collectors were some of the most hated and despised people of the day because they worked for the occupying force of the day in the first century, Rome. The Romans were brutal tyrants. They were not a peaceful occupying force trying to bring peace and stability to the region. Here's an example. A few years before Jesus' birth, the Julius Caesar of the Roman Empire, he slaughtered almost two million people trying to bring Gaul, which is modern-day France, trying to bring Gaul into the Roman Empire. Two million people. They weren't just brutal, though; they were also smart. They knew that the way to maintain power among their empire was not to spread themselves so thin and do the ruling themselves. They would hire locals to do their dirty work for them. They would recruit and in many ways exploit the local people, particularly to be tax collectors. And in this case, in this story, the Jews would be the one to extract taxes from their own people by any means necessary. And they had to do this because the Romans were not paying these tax collectors. So these Jewish people were on the hook not just to collect taxes for Rome, but to collect their own salary. And this is a system that left the doors wide open for greed to run rampant. And so tax collectors, they had a reputation for being dishonest. They were despised and hated by their own people. Knowing all that, go back to the tax collector in the story. What's he doing? Well, guess what? He's standing far off too. But his distance isn't born out of pride or judgment. It's born from shame. 
It's born from his standing in life. If you look at verse 13, he wouldn't even look up to heaven. And it may be out of frustration, anguish, sorrow, who knows, he beats his breast and he cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what this tax collector is? This tax collector is needy. He doesn't consider himself worthy to be in the temple, worthy to be in God's presence. No, he cries out in desperation to God for mercy because he knows he needs it. He is acutely aware of his sins as he stands before God. And notice, who went away justified? It's just a word that means vindicated, accepted by God. Who went away justified? Well, it was the tax collector. Why? Because he was needy. What about you? Do you see yourself, do we see ourselves as needy like this tax collector? Or do we think, yeah, we're doing okay. We're doing fine. We're doing better than most. At least I'm not like those people. Could be doing a lot worse. Seminary professor Jaron Bars, I mentioned earlier, he, he said it like this, and these are one of these quotes that you just read and you have to stop and process and think. He said this, when we think our lives are good and upright, we very readily start imagining that we are earning heaven. We begin to take the love of God for granted as if fellowship with him were something to which we have a right. Man. Let me ask it this way. Do you think that being good, that, that our efforts to pay it for, do you think they're, they're good enough? I mean, in an honest moment, do, do you really think that God is pleased with that? If so, we have a rude awakening based on the scriptures. Back to Romans chapter three, it says this, for by works of the law, we might say, for by the good things that we do, good intentions, good actual done deeds, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's the same word from the story. No human being will be justified, will be vindicated, will be acceptable to God in his sight. The Pharisee wasn't, but the tax collector was. Why? Well, because the tax collector was needy. You see, if we see ourselves as good, if we think we're doing fine, if we think that we're doing better than most, then we need to be careful. We need to be careful because we might miss our need for Jesus. Another passage in the Gospel of Luke chapter five, Jesus, again speaking of Pharisees, that's telling. He says, verse 31, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call, I've come to call not let me start that over. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sinners to repentance. You know, when's the last time you're feeling pretty good health-wise? Hey, I'm feeling really good. I just had a workout. This is awesome. You know what I need to do? I need to call the doctor. Go get a checkup. No, nobody does that. We only call a doctor when something's wrong. See, Jesus is telling us that his church, his people, his followers, they're not all stars. They're hospital patients. To be a Christian is to not to live life with a Superman suit underneath our clothes. It's to live life with a hospital band on our wrist and an IV bag. Back to that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. This is the first of Jesus' 12, 12 Beatitudes. This is what it's, what it's like to be a Christian. What is it like to follow Jesus? First one out of the gate. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What? Blessed. That means not just happy, but this is how you know you're in a right relationship with God. Everything's good. You're poor in spirit. The recognition that you need Jesus. That's the first one. One more. You're getting the point, but one more. Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 12. 
But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Jesus never said that Christians are good people. He said that they're needy people. And this is how we need to view ourselves. So, so what happens? What changes will happen if and when we primarily see ourselves as needy? Well, first, and Ted, you can go to the next slide. First, we're going to see that we're welcomed by Jesus. First John, it's a New Testament epistle written by the Apostle John. First John 1, verse 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, when you and I, when we come to Jesus empty-handed, admitting our weaknesses, asking for forgiveness, guess what? He's faithful. He's gonna forgive us. He won't turn us away. He'll welcome us. Second thing's gonna happen then when we see ourselves as needy is that we're gonna grow in humility. We're gonna stop looking around at other people's faults, at other people's sins, at other people's shortcomings, and you know what? We're gonna focus on our own. We're gonna begin to get more upset, more troubled by our own sins rather than the sins of others. Doesn't mean that we never approach and talk to someone about their sins, but gosh, that's gonna be maybe second or third in line. The first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna deal with ourselves. We're gonna be able to freely do admit to everybody watching, Christians or non-Christians, that no, we're not perfect. Yes, we're hypocrites. We are not as we should be, but we are relying on Jesus. We are needy, and we need his help to change it. See, seeing ourselves as needy means that we can embrace that reality instead of run from it, instead of keep it at bay. Finally, last one, and ironically, seeing ourselves primarily as needy means that we're gonna want to do good. It means that we're gonna want to do good. A few years ago, when Adeline was one, uh, she found out she had a little, little hole in her heart, a little heart murmur. It's fine now, but at the time, it was pretty serious. And so right away, we went to get an EKG. It's where they you know, put all the stickers on you and you can see your heart. And everything was fine, but it wasn't cheap. It was $2,000. And that was $2,000 that uh, we didn't have at the time. See, to do my job and every Veritas staff to do their job full-time, we have to raise financial support to do our jobs. I've said that, do our jobs three times now. Anyway, our supporters, that we just didn't have enough coming in at the time. And so literally, we went to bed that night going, gosh, I don't know where this money's gonna come from. It was a sleepless night. Next morning, I get up, I'm walking through the foyer at the crossing, and I see one of my supporters, and he just comes up, and I go to shake his hand, and he puts a half sheet of paper in there. And I turn, and I look at it, and it wasn't a half sheet of paper, it was a check for $2,000. Not making this up. I was, I was floored. It's a really cool story about God's provision in hard, in hard times. But also, you know what my response was? First, I was floored. I told him the story. He just had a big smile, gave me a big hug. But I found myself wanting to be generous, wanting to be gracious to other people, wanting to pay it forward. Why? Because of the good that was done to me. It's the exact same dynamic with good works in the Christian life. If I can be motivated to do good works based on a $2,000 check, how much more should I be motivated to do good for others when Jesus paid an, a priceless price for my sins? The reality is that Jesus meets us in our need. He provides salvation. He provides encouragement. He provides love. He provides compassion and mercy. And we draw from the well of these blessings to get the strength, to get the desire, to get the ability to show that same 
for others. We do good to others because of the good that's been done to us. Now, now let's live in reality here for a second, right? We're not always gonna feel like we wanna do good works. You know, feelings come and go. There's gonna be times when you just have to do the right thing because it's the right thing, it's the good thing, even though you don't want to. You know, I don't always feel in love with my wife. She doesn't always feel in love with me, but you know what? Sometimes you just gotta do good for the other person, serve the other person. I don't always love my children. I don't know why people laugh. Sorry, kids, if you're listening later. I don't always love them, right? But I, but I sometimes just have to do good to them, have to serve them, have to love them. Similarly, you know, you're not always gonna feel like you wanna do good to other people. In those moments, I think here's, here's what I do. Not the only thing to do, but I think a good thing is just acknowledge the space between our head and our heart. Bring that to Jesus and say, you know what, I know it shouldn't be like this. I pray that you close that gap. Help me to realize all that you've done for me and help me to want to do this and then do it anyway. And pray that, that Jesus would close that gap. I'll end with this and the music team can come on up. Just ask a simple question. How are you like the Pharisee in that story? Where are you standing far off in judgment of other people? Where and how are you self-congratulating yourself, patting yourself on the back for the good that you're doing? What if this week, what if we just asked God to give us the heart of the tax collector? What if this week we were intentional about asking God to show us our need, not once, but continually, daily. See, because God doesn't want us to move on from our need of Jesus. It's how it's supposed to be every single day of our lives. In God's eyes, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they're the same. Both were sinners. Both needed Jesus. But you know what? Only one of them knew it. Only one of them knew it. And only one of them left the temple that day justified. Why? Because the tax collector saw his need and in his neediness he cried out to God and God met him. Christians aren't good people. We're needy people. Together, let's ask God to help us to have eyes to see this truth more and more. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, Follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.